Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. You know, people would come up to him, you know, in a club and just say, I started using heroin because of your song. Uh, and, you know, this is an ongoing debate that will never end. I mean, to what degree is an artist responsible for what people do as a result of listening to their music? You know, I think Lou stopped playing heroin for a while because of that impact. You know, eventually he went back to it. Uh, I mean, went back to performing the song. And I think, you know, one thing that Lou would say is, look, you know, these are songs. They're not prescriptions for living. You know, if you go see Othello, Othello kills Desdemona. Is that how you're supposed to act? You're watching a play. And I think he felt he had to present as honestly as he could the characters in his songs, regardless of what they were doing. I don't think anyone is anyone else's moral compass. Maybe listening to my music is not the best for anyone who lives a restricted life. Or maybe it is. I'm writing about real things, real people, real characters. The intriguing words of American musician, singer and songwriter Lou Reed. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is the price of artistic freedom? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore that question with American writer, music critic and academic Anthony DeCurtis whose latest book, Lou Reed A Life, has just been published by John Murray, where Anthony writes, Walk on the Wild Side is more than a song. It's a slogan and an invitation. Its title distills Reed's primary symbolic value to expose people to worlds they might never have become aware of otherwise. Anthony goes on to write, Reed's own deep insecurities and desire for control narrowed his world considerably. So who and what was Lou Reed? And can rock and roll save your life? Uh, my name is Anthony G. Curtis, and I'm a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. I teach creative writing uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm the author of a biography of Lou Reed called Lou Reed, A Life, which just came out and which I'm very excited about. Really well done on uh, the book, Anthony. It's a fascinating um, exploration of personality. I loved every uh, every bit of it, although it's a very, very challenging read. So it's not something that you kind of relax into. It's more gripping and absorbing. I might um, throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. And it's something that Laurie Anderson, the musician and wife of uh, the late Lou Reed, touched on at his funeral. Um do you think Lou Reed's life, uh, his life symbolised artistic freedom or something close to that? Yo, yeah, I absolutely do uh, think that Lou Reed's life symbolised artistic freedom. And I think that symbolic content, uh, certainly for younger musicians, is as important as his music. You know, there was a sense, uh, you know, during Lou Reed's solo career, which you know, lasted 40 years, you know, it, it, when you're living in a contemporary way with an artist, you like this record, you don't like that one, you know, people would say, oh, his solo career is uneven. But I think for young artists, what they saw in that unevenness was a willingness to experiment and a willingness to take risks, a willingness to exist independently of expectations. And I think that is Lou Reed's symbolic importance, you know, so that it wasn't so much for them, you know, did I like this record or did I not like it? It was, wow, this guy's just willing to try anything. And that's inspiring. 
you actually knew Lou Reed quite well. You met him a couple of times. You collaborated on different projects. You did a few public interviews with him and so on. I'm just wondering, yeah. from your, your, your gut here, do you think anger fueled him in some way? Oh, yeah. You know, I think that Lou, um, I think anger was a motivating device for him. And I think he tried to access it sometimes when it wasn't even appropriate. Lou liked to experience himself as, you know, an outsider. And that did drive him. That motivated him to prove something. It also, you know, I think it also kind of resonated with certain types of insecurity that he had. But he would take things like, um, say, the reviews for his album Berlin. You know, uh, there were a few extremely negative reviews. And, you know, it's a difficult record. Um, but there also were very, very supportive reviews, like in the New York Times, for example, of a very prominent uh, critic named John Rockwell gave it really a, a, a very beautiful and appreciative review. Lou would pay much less attention to the positive review and would focus on the negative, I think, as a way to kind of drive himself. You know, and I think that was, uh, I mean, as, as you suggest, I think that you know, was a motivating force. He would get angry about it and then um, he would create out of that. You write in your introductions that Lou Reed was the ultimate New York City man and you say that you saw uh, Lou Reed the way he wanted to see himself but you were always aware of his innumerable contradictions and you were always fascinated by them. Can you talk me through that? Because a lot of people would see him as a very transgressive figure, a little bit intimidating and some would feel him just or just see him as just a very angry man. So uh, presumably navigating all those contradictions drove you into kind of questions on creativity, did it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think trying to negotiate those contradictions became more or less the entire job of the book. I mean, it it very quickly um, became clear to me that trying to make sense out of what I think of as the doubleness of Lou Reed, you know, there was, um, you know, in terms of his sexuality, for example, or in terms of um, just almost any emotion that he felt found its opposite expression, and often at the same time. You know, there's a, you know, a kind of psychological idea called overdetermination. You know, the idea that um, a particular action can be motivated not simply by uh, more than one motive, but by completely contradictory motives, you know, so that uh, and one act can express both love and hate. And that idea <laughs> carried me through about... 85% of writing the Lou Reed biography. I think that, you know, Lou functioned that way. There was a kind of, you know, push and pull within himself. Uh, and that, you know, even with his audience, I think, you know, when he would have a successful record, he would immediately pull back and, you know, try something else. He would, um, uh, in terms of his relationship with uh, his partners, you know, he would he would draw them in and, and you know, pull them close and then push them away. There was, you know, that that kind of tension existed within him and trying to sort that out really became the, uh, you know, the job, was, was really the basic job of writing the biography. 
Do you think he wanted to be a rock star from the get-go? Like that was his be-all and end-all of things? Because it strikes me that in, in a lot of ways, and if you look at his lyrics and what he attempted to do within the stories, within his lyrics, that he was a, a poet of sorts. Because if you look at some of the songs, um, do you know what I mean? Some of them go into places that really um, ask a lot, don't they? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I do think that he's, he wanted to be a rock star. But one of his early motivations, you know, he studied, uh, he went to Syracuse University uh, here in New York State. It's a very, it's a good school, but it's a, you know, kind of in, in an isolated area in upstate New York. Um, he studied with a poet named Delmore Schwartz. Uh, Delmore was a, was, a, was a very significant literary figure, much admired by, you know, T.S. Eliot, Saul Bellow, many, many other uh, literary luminaries. And he was, Delmore was Lou's first vision of a larger world. Delmore hated rock and roll. You know, he was a great writer, but he thought the lyrics were stupid. And that attitude, I think, engendered in Lou a desire, well, I love rock and roll, and maybe I can create rock and roll with lyrics that someone like Delmore Schwartz would admire. And I think that became his project. You know, that became something he wanted to do. Suppose I wrote songs in the, that, that drew on the same kind of things that someone like Allen Ginsberg or William Burrow or Hubert Selby would be thinking about and created rock and roll songs that latched onto those kinds of themes and used language uh, on that scale. And I think, you know, to a very large degree, he was successful at accomplishing that. It's a lovely idea to think that rock and roll can save you, isn't it? I suppose it's like any creative pursuit, how it can give you wings and carry you forward and give you strength. But in Lou Reed's case, he um, had a pretty tough time in his early days. And we might get on to later his relationship with his father. But he did go through electric shock therapy in college. And um, he went through some uh, pretty heavy regimes to help him and strengthen him in some way. But I don't think they really worked, do they? (laughs) <laughs> Not really, no. In fact, I mean, you know, when you were speaking earlier about anger motivating Lou, uh, he came to see his shock treatments that were prescribed for him. I mean, his parents, I mean, Lou as a teenager was using drugs. He was experiencing, uh, you know, pretty significant mood swings. And I think, you know, significantly he was going to gay bars and things like that. He was, you know, a teenager, and this was the 50s. This was not in any sense... Um, typical behavior. His parents were very conventional people. Uh, you know, they were, um, you know, middle class, uh, had fled the city, fled New York to move to Long Island, essentially to live in a kind of, you know, very quiet suburban paradise. And, you know, that situation and lose um, wild rebellions against it. You know, they kind of reached a peak and his parents, um, were advised to subject him to uh, electroshock treatments. And that, you know, strange to say, I mean, that was not an uncommon uh, prescription at that time. Lou saw it as a form of torture. Um, He never forgave his parents for it. And it became um, a great motivator for him, you know. Uh, and, And he kind of created an image. I mean, his mother was guilty about it for the rest of her life. I think his father felt... You know, I did the best I could. I tried. You know, this is what the doctors told me to do. And, um, but Lou saw his father um, at least somewhere inside himself as um, 
a kind of monstrous figure in many ways, uh, even though what his father was was a kind of successful accountant who wanted nothing more than to have a son who would take over his accounting business. Um, he was always there for Lou when Lou needed him. Lou dedicated a book of lyrics to his mother and father. So there again we see this doubleness, you know. Uh, you know, On the one hand, this element of using a, a portrait of particularly his father to kind of become a driving force. You hear it in a song like Kill Your Sons, I think, most explicitly. But at the same time, you know, when Luke quit the Velvet Underground, the first thing he did was move back home. He moved back into his own old room, went to work for his father as a typist, uh, you know, hung out with his parents at their, you know, little uh, private club, you know, kind of like a little, uh, kind of a yacht club, really. And, you know, <laughs> had a pretty good time doing it, you know. So there was this kind of dual emotional life, I think, that he felt with regard to his parents and and pretty much everything else. He seems to have um, carried that contempt towards his father and that feeling of distrust and disappointment, though, right to the grave. You quote a very yep. um, poignant scene in um, at the end of the book. He was with one of his friends, Julian, and they were having, Julian was helping him bathe um, in his swimming pool and it was a few weeks before his, he died. And yep. um, he confided in to Julian that his father had smacked him across the face when they were walking down a beach when he was a child. And it was kind of, I think he'd reached out to his father to hold his father's hand and it was a kind of a turning point in his life as well as a turning point it seems in his relationship with his father and he said my father didn't give a shit and it's interesting to look at this um, you know this towering figure in rock and roll art punk you name it and you know he had a kind of a childlike idea of his father all through his life yeah absolutely and he seems uh, to have gone through very lots much of, yeah. childlike seeing his father is all powerful in some way um, you know, I think that incident that you described, uh, that was actually, it was Julian Schnabel, the painter, who is a good friend of Lou's, who told that story. Um, whether that actually ever happened, however, the, the idea of his father slapping him, I asked a number of people very close to that family, you know, and people who spoke to me very candidly, some on the record, some, you know, for background. I said, could you imagine... Um, Lou's father hitting him that way. And to a person, they said, that's inconceivable. I, you know, I wasn't there, you know, I mean, Lou said it, but the person I knew could never have done that. And so to one extent or another, the degree to which a scene like that might be a kind of psychological creation on Lou's part is, um, is, is certainly possible. You know, that, that, is part of how he viewed his father as this this all-powerful figure uh, trying to destroy him, really. You know, I think, um, you know, at the same time as, you know, when I spoke to Lou's first wife, Betty Kronstadt, and uh, I once asked her, you know, she was talking about how they would they were living, she and Lou were living in small apartments, and Lou never wanted to ask his parents for money. And I said, well, would his father have given him, given him money? And Betty just said, of course he would have given him money, like anything for Lou. Like Lou was, you know, the oldest son in this Jewish family, and they would absolutely have helped him. You know, so what was going on inside Lou Reed in terms of his depiction, particularly of his father, um, and what was, an, you know, actual facts in the world, you know, 
it seems like a pretty discordant relationship and 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 complex one, one that had a psychological reality for him that you know wasn't necessarily what played out in reality. God, that must have been very troubling for you as a biographer because clearly you want to get at the truth. But also, I imagine that there is a satisfaction to be found to have some form of understanding of your subject or to have some form of compassion and trust in yourself that you've got it. So depending on who you talk to. But then given all the um, mental health challenges that Lou Reed went through throughout his life, the heavy drugs that he took and whether his creative relationship with the truth or not, it is it's understandable how he reprocessed his memories, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, and I, I don't, I think that's probably, you know, I think that's probably more common than we think. You know, I, you know, it's, it's one thing when you start examining a life and, you know, when you're talking to, you know, everyone that you can find who is close to the person, um, you know, I mean, I wonder how many of us could withstand that and could withstand the kind of degree of those contradictions that might come up in terms of our own, you know, relationship with these figures in our life, you know, there, I was writing at one point about the way that Lou treated his own characters in his songs, and uh, I think this idea of distance and empathy what I, is what I, the way I thought about it, and you know, that's the way I tried to treat him. So after a while, these kinds of discordant elements in his, uh, in his psychology, and you know in his actual lived experience, the, the distinctions between those two things, they stopped surprising me after a while. It, it just became a question of trying to come up with a reading of them without reducing them, you know? I think everybody kind of creates a, a certain mythology about their own life, about their own life, you know? And, you know, to one degree or another, um, you know, that's kind of necessary in the stories we tell ourselves about our own experiences. Um, but, you know, in Lou's case, I think the most significant thing was that he used that mythology in his work, that he put it to use, you know, in, in, in very creative ways. And um, as much as he suffered, you know, as a result of that, he also created brilliantly out of it. Did he always dominate the room? Because it seems that in a lot of times throughout his whole life that he was crippled with anxiety. And, you know, he, he seemed to attract and, and certainly pursue very smart people, very educated, yep. highly yes. skilled. And all his um, uh, three um, long-term relationships, partners or wives, they all were very smart women. But he seems Indeed. to have been lonely throughout. Yeah. You know. So you just put out so many interesting ideas about him. Yes, all of that is true. Um, he had very, um, I mean, interviewing, I mean, Laurie Anderson did not do an interview for this book. You know, I mean, she's spoken about Lou, but I think she wants, a, you know, a kind of detachment. I mean, she knew, I assume, that there would be things in this book that would not have made Lou happy. And I think she wanted to maintain a certain distance from it. On the other hand, you know, she didn't stop anybody from speaking to me. And But his earlier, you know, his two previous wives and, you know, you know, various of his girlfriends that I spoke to were, you know, and I, I'd interviewed Lori in the past. Um, so, you know, I had a sense about her and I was around her and Lou a fair amount. Um, there were, they were uniformly interesting and, and very, um, very observant. You know, they were they were people that um, 
things to say about their experience with Lou Reed. And they were also very entertaining. I mean, they were they were kind of lovely people to have a conversation with. Um, but you know, a lot of them, you know, there was there was you know there was violence in some of those relationships, and there was um, you know certainly a lot of stress and and difficulty. But you know, they also uh, discussed how romantic Lou could be, and how um, you know there was. You said that, you know, there was a, a loneliness. There also was a kind of neediness. And, you know, sometimes if, you know, you care about someone, like it's, you know, you could respond to that in ways that, uh, you know, feel very profound. Um, you know, there was something finally in Lou that was very hard to satisfy. Um, you know, he hated to be alone, for example. You know, he was, he desperately feared uh, being abandoned. Uh, there were lots of insecurities, and you know, ultimately, those could never be answered. You know, and I think the person, in many ways, who did it most successfully was Laurie Anderson because, you know, she was a fully established artist when Lou met her, and she was never afraid to just live her own life. She didn't try to fix him. You know, I think she tried to live with him, and she also tried to live her own life. And uh, in terms of the survival of that marriage, I think that was the smartest way to go. Laurie seems to have got him into Tai Chi and Buddhist meditation and that had a profound impact on him and certainly seemed to have given him great comfort at the end, didn't it? Yeah, those disciplines, you know, the Tai Chi, uh, the meditation, Buddhism, um, in many ways, you know, there was a, a, a line in Lou's life, you know, throughout um, his life, you know, and this is not something I, I certainly knew about him, uh, but that I learned, was these spiritualist interests ran through his life. I mean, even with the Velvet Underground, I mean, he would talk about a song like, you know, White Light, White Heat, which, uh, you know, to the <laughs> to the naked ear, just sounds like a song about amphetamine. But uh, in fact, was uh, in part like he he talked to one person that I interviewed in the book about White Light as a kind of spiritual awakening. And, you know, he was always experimenting with different diets and different types of food and different, um, you know, ways to achieve something that was um, kind of a little bit higher than this world, a kind of consciousness, uh, you know, that, that, that had a redemptive quality, I suppose. There was one guy who worked with him named Jeff Ross who once said, because, you know, the sense I always had about Lou was he was always thinking, like, where's the door? Like, how do I get out of here? And that feeling, I mean, it, there was a practical element to that, you know, being in social situations or, or other situations that he just wanted to exit. But I think there was a larger sort of metaphorical meaning to that, which is, you know, what's beyond this? And I think Laurie, in her own explorations of those uh, kind of disciplines, um, was helpful to him. You know, and, and that did give him a focus. And he also needed it more at that point in his life. You know, after the early 80s, he had pretty much given up drugs and gotten clean. You know, he would occasionally smoke some weed and he would occasionally have a glass of wine. But uh, other than that, he was, um, you know, certainly there was no heroin, there was no speed, there was no cocaine, none of the other stuff that had really damaged him earlier. But as a result of not having those kind of self-medicating, uh, you know, sources, you know, the, the, the meditation and the Tai Chi, uh, Buddhism, those kinds of things became more significant and more essential 
because there was there was no other way to to, to kind of deal with the the internal struggle that he always felt. Is it fair to say that Andy Warhol put the Velvet Underground on the map? Like he 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 made some really uh, important decisions in relation to album covers. Yeah. Um, obviously, he brought in uh, Nico as the lead singer, but he seems yeah. to have given a kind of a vision and a kind of a an aesthetic vision to the band and where they were that uh, transformed how they were perceived to a larger market, didn't he? Absolutely. I mean, Andy Warhol was Lou's second great mentor. The first was Delmore Schwartz, his, the poet who was his teacher at Syracuse University. But Andy kind of, again, became like Lou's connection to a larger world. I mean, when Andy Warhol sort of adopted the Velvet Underground, you know, that put them on a big stage. You know, Warhol was, you know, perhaps the most, certainly the most famous artist in America at that point. You know, you know, I grew up in New York and I was a kid at the time, but Andy Warhol was in the newspapers every day. You know, I mean, you know, it was essentially, this is the crazy guy who thinks that uh, Campbell's soup can is a work of art. So some of it was kind of joking, but he still had a public um, persona. And, you know, when you're in a young band, <laughs> you know, you need a way to just make yourself visible. And Warhol instantly provided that for the Velvet Underground. And he also provided Lou um, with a kind of work ethic. You know, Warhol would always be saying to him, like, look, you need to write songs. You know, you need to, you know, this isn't, you know, you want to be a rock star, but that's a job. Do your work. You know, there was, uh, he took a lot of uh, lessons from Warhol and internalized them um, at the same time as that, as soon as he had gotten those lessons, Warhol had to go. That was a very, that was a very Lou um, uh, kind of, um, machination. I mean, once he got what he needed, uh, somehow uh, the person that he got it from became either a rival or just someone essentially who had to be excised. And um, and Lou fired Warhol essentially. Uh, you know, and um, you know later would collaborate with John Cale on an album about him, Songs for Drella. But Warhol made a, a gigantic impact, and then uh, was was ushered out of Lou's life. When we think of some of the great, uh, the great tunes, you think of Sweet Jane, I was listening to it this morning, Dancing Around yeah. the Kitchen. It's a, one of my personal favourites. And, you know, yeah. pale, you know, Pale Blue Eyes. There's so, some classics there. But Heroin is such a monumental song in so many different ways. Uh, creatively, yeah. from a point of risk. It's just such, a, such, a, such an iconic uh, uh, and daring song. But you write that, like all Reed's best works, the song takes no moral position on drug use. It's simply a Attempts to render that experience from the standpoint of the user. It's fascinating, yeah. really, because a lot of people at the time wouldn't have got that, and it caused such a controversy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Lou would talk about that. You know, people would come up to him, you know, in a club and just say, I started using heroin because of your song. Uh, and, you know, this is an ongoing debate that will never end. I mean, to what degree is an artist responsible for what people do as a result of listening to their music? You know, I think... Lou stopped playing heroin for a while because of that impact. You know, eventually he went back to it. Uh, I mean, it went back to performing the song. And I think, you know, one thing that Lou would say is, look, you know, these are songs. They're not prescriptions for living. You know, if you go see Othello, Othello kills Desdemona. Is that how you're supposed to act? You're watching a play. And I think he felt 
he had to present as honestly as he could the characters in his songs, regardless of what they were doing. And, you know, whether that was, you know, his girlfriend, Shelley Alban, or a heroin user, as in heroin, you know, you know, both the kind of sweetness and delicacy and, um, you know, incredible emotional sensitivity of, uh, of Pale Blue Eyes and the kind of, uh, you know, incredible detachment and at the same time understanding of the kind of journey that a heroin user wants to go on, that desire to disappear that the drug makes possible. I mean, Lou had used the drug, so he knew that. And also, um, he knew how to render it in a work of art, which, as we know, is a very different thing from simply experiencing it. Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American writer, music critic and academic Anthony De Curtis, whose latest book, Lou Reed A Life, has just been published by John Murray. I asked Anthony about Lou Reed's intense relationship with his transvestite lover and muse Rachel, the girl he dedicated Coney Island Baby to. 
and how Rachel seems to have developed Lou Reed's creative and artistic energies, only to be suddenly dumped and replaced by Sylvia Morales, who would later become his manager. Yeah, Rachel was, I guess the term we would use now is transgender, uh, born a male named Richard Humphreys. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, I mean, dress up in women's clothes and, and pick men up over by the docks in the West Village. And Lou met her at an after-hours bar and um, very deeply fell in love with her. And as you mentioned, dedicated Coney Island Baby, which is perhaps his most romantic song to Rachel. And um, they lived together openly for three years. And, you know, I mean, if a rock star of Lou Reed's stature did that now, lived with a transgender person openly now, that would be shocking. 40 years ago, it was just unthinkable, except Lou was doing it. Um, And that was one of the kind of surprises of the book. I mean, because I knew about Rachel. I mean, as I said, you know, he wrote about her in Coney Island Baby. He wrote about her in the song Street Hustle. Um, So I I knew that he had had this relationship. And, you know, in some naive way, I just thought, oh, Lou, he was wild. You know, he was up for anything. But... As I researched it and talked to people who knew Rachel and knew had been around Lou and Rachel, the depth of that relationship really became um, powerfully apparent to me. And it was as real and true a relationship as, um, you know, any of his relationships with, um, you know, the, the more kind of heteronormative, heteronormative women, you know, that he got involved with, you know. But there was a point, I mean, as you point out, where Lou met uh, the woman who would be his second wife, Sylvia Morales, and um, and sort of that was the end of it with Rachel. And exactly what happened to her is is a bit of a mystery. No one is really, you know, no one is really sure. You go into great detail about um, um, David Bowie's impact on um, on Lou Reed and how he energised him both creatively and personally. I'm just wondering, were they were they very close? Like, clearly they were very good as uh, collaborators, but how close were they? Um, they were close. You know, they were close uh, at various points. I mean, Lou was very excited. I mean, David Bowie gave Lou his solo career, essentially. You know, after the Velvet Underground, you know, David Bowie and Mick Ronson, Bowie's guitar player, co-produced um, Transformer, uh, you know, which may be Lou's best-known album. It includes Walk on the Wild Side, his only hit. And, you know, Bowie was paying a debt. You know, he felt very much inspired by the Velvet Underground and really felt like Lou was a figure that had to, um, as, you know, be made current. And that's what Transformer did. It, it it sort of recast Lou for a new generation, a younger generation of fans. Um, as so often happened with Lou, he then sort of resented some of the credit that Bowie was given, and quite justifiably given, uh, for that success. And um, they famously, David and and Lou, had a fist fight uh, in London when... Um, when Bowie, who was up certainly up to his own shenanigans at the time, you know, said to Lou, like, look, you know, you're going to have to clean up if I am going to work with you again. And Lou got so angry about that, uh, that, you know, that they had a fight. Um, over the years, 
you know, they came back to be friends, certainly. And, you know, but Lou always, you know, anytime somebody was getting credit for something that he accomplished, uh, Lou would, that would excite a certain type of insecurity in Lou. And he would distance himself from that person. And that certainly went on for a time with David Bowie. After a while, you know, when enough time had passed, I mean, I think that that was no longer an issue. But it certainly was uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of uh, Transformer. I loved reading about uh, Berlin and, you know, the lengths that Lou Reed went to. You quote him saying uh, something on the lines of, I think I've gone as deep as I can for my own mental health. If I'd got any yeah. deeper, I'd wind up disappearing. Uh, and yeah. you mentioned earlier, you know, that, you know, he kind of reveled in the negative reviews and uh, and probably yeah. tried to kind of glean some artistic um, cr- uh, insights in some way. But it got me yeah. thinking that, you know, isn't it unbelievably commendable and admirable? of any artist to push or come out with an album like that and you know that clearly wouldn't appeal to the broad majority but he yes. was willing to do that and you know he clearly had issues relating to anger management and rage and yep. he clearly could act up and he was able to play people off each other but you know to have that capacity to take the creative risks put his career on the line and see where it took him that takes tremendous creative integrity doesn't it? Absolutely. And that goes back to the point you made very early on when, as we were speaking. Uh, you know, when you talk about Laurie Anderson mentioning uh, Lou as a symbol of creative freedom, that was a perfect example of it. You know, the Berlin album, that was not what the record company was looking for. You know, they wanted, it was just like Lou had finally had a hit uh, with Walk on the Wild Side. And, you know, look... I mean, record companies want to sell records. And so they're like, okay, let's do, you know, walk on the wild side again or take another walk on the wild side. And Lou went off in another direction, you know, with Berlin. And that became, you know, a, oh, God, how would you even describe it? One of the terms that he used, along with Bob Ezrin, who who produced that album, uh, they were trying to make kind of a movie for the mind. There was a... a a narrative line through it, but it was very grisly stuff. You know, there's a married couple in there. There's a lot of violence within their relationship, uh, a lot of uh, infidelity, a lot of drug use. And the album at the same time has an incredible beauty to it. Uh, You know, if you listen to a song like, you know, Caroline Says Too, or you listen to The Bed, the subjects of those songs are frightening. But the melodies are just gorgeous. They're very simple, and they're they're and they just kind of seep into your mind. And the impact of that, I mean, that album was so far ahead of its time that um, you know by the time you know Lou went on tour and performed that album, and I think it was 2007, right around then. And by then, the the record had really been recognized. Um, you know, that was that was a great validation for him, you know, and, uh, and an example of, you know, and, and before the Velvet Underground, you know, the idea that you could be in a band that would appeal to posterity the way novelists could or uh, a playwright could or a poet could or even a filmmaker could, you know, in, in, in rock and roll, you were supposed to have hits. And if you didn't have hits, you, should, you just got sent home, you know? And even if you did have hits, you didn't really have much of a career. You know, you had a, a few years, and 
then, you know, then you went back home. Whereas, you know, the Velvet Underground, um, you know, the famous Brian Eno quote about them, that the first album only sold 30,000 copies, but every one of those 30,000 people formed a band. You know, that's that kind of impact, where which only gets felt over time, is something that Lou Reed accomplished again and again. You know, and that, you know, you know when we talk about his, uh, along with his, artistic importance, his symbolic importance, I think resides in that, you know, that, um, you know, take the risk and, and, you know, trust that it will, it will find its, its, its place in, in people's lives eventually. A lot of the people you interviewed um, seem to have surmised to some degree about the violence of his anger. And you, you talk about how it was the least attractive part of his personality. But you said yeah. something very interesting and you argued a point and it really got me thinking in relation to his violence that it can be viewed as cathartic. A 